Jesus, I pray that that simply wouldn't just be words that we sing. But that would be the focus of our lives. To exalt you. We know that we will be judged by what we do. But the judgment comes out of a redeemed heart that looks to serve one another. And in that, you are exalted and lifted up. Lord, I surrender to you. Speak through me to build up your family, your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope that you've been encouraged as we're looking at the uh, what the Bible says about, really, in this case, it's going to be eschatology or, or the end. And um, I was talking to uh, a couple weeks ago, a couple other pastors about they're going through Revelation as well. And um, I just all kind of looked at each other and like, why didn't we talk to each other and warn us from doing this <laughs> because this is something that's so uh, difficult to, to go through. And, and I want to go back to what I said in the very first sermon on this series of how things are going to end. These things we hold loosely. I don't really know. There's a lot of good minds that believe in a premillennial position, those that believe in an amillennial. Um, but as I stress, the most important thing is really isn't, is there a millennium or not? What's the most important thing? That you're just in, you're in the kingdom, that you get in. Okay, and so I want to begin by talking about, last week I began with a preview of coming attractions, because we're going to talk about what last week we looked at, well, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, but what I call is a, a working tool up here. It's lights coming on, it's yellow, that's supposed to be yellow? Well, how's that? Will it work now? I got it now. Very good. Okay. Last week I began with a preview of coming attractions, and we talked about kind of what life is like in, in the kingdom. Let me give you another um, coming attraction. Um, turning your Bibles to Matthew 16. Okay? A very, um, I wouldn't say controversial, it's just hard to understand one of those verses that can have multiple um, meanings. Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 through 17, 8. It says, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. What's that referring to? The second coming. And will then repay every man according to his deeds. What is that referring to? Most likely the... the the scripture of the judgment of the sheep and goats, okay? Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now I want you to put yourself in the... If you were alive at that time and you heard those words, what would you think? Some of us aren't going to what? I'm going to die until this happens, right? So clearly Jesus is referring to his second coming in these two verses. How is it that some will not die until... He comes again. Because that didn't happen, did it? 
Obviously, he was, this was not fulfilled literally. But what do these verses mean? Well, I think that the answer lies in the next verses, and it gives us a preview of life in his kingdom. And that's really the focus. What is life like in his, if there is a millennial kingdom, what will it be like? Look at verse 17. Six days later, or chapter 17, verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let me just pause right there. Why would he even think to make tabernacles? Do you know what a tabernacle is? It's called the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles. They would, God had them do what? The, the people of Israel. They would live at gather homes, make these booze, and live in them as a reminder of their time in the wilderness. But the point is, is that they are with God. They're tabernacling and living with God. That's the whole point, to be in his presence. Verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So this is the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, glory, shining in all his brilliance. I think that's how that question is answered. But here it is. And just like the kingdom, I'm talking about his kingdom, the Old Testament saints are represented by Moses and Elijah. New Testament saints are represented by Peter, James, and John. And more importantly, Christ takes a preeminent place. I believe this is what it will be like in the kingdom. Glorified believers from all ages, old and new, fellowshipping with Jesus and with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, can you imagine... There you are in the millennial kingdom, and of course, all the Old Testament saints that are with you. And you can ask Noah, for example, what was it like during the flood? <laughs> or talk with Moses about the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Like, just how did he do that? What did it look like? Walking through that, it was just, could you see fish in that wall of water? I mean, what, what, what was that? We're asking Adam, why didn't you just step in and protect Eve from the serpent? You know? Or seeking from Jesus the answer to the one question that we all want to know, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll lollipop? Because that's a question that we all want to know, right? Because we don't know. You can tell when I was born, when I was watching TV... Well, last week, we took a look from a scientific or ecological perspective of what the renewed earth might look like in God's earthly millennial kingdom. And from the verses that we discussed, I speculated, and again, I'm speculating based upon verses, that God is going to restore the planet to its nearly original condition. 
the first earth. All the earthquakes and all the disasters and so on, um, he's going to restore the planet. That we had underground reservoir, the water that will go up because of lack of gravity perhaps will go up, there'll be water above the earth, below the earth, a water canopy will surround everything. Okay? Mountains are what? They're flattened. Islands are what? They're gone for the most part. And there could be great tectonic movement and could have that one Pangea, that one big... Because um, you look, again, you look at the earth, it's like a puzzle. You can fit it together right now. And we think that, that that's the way it was at the first earth, then the flood, and it just separated everything. But what I also said was that the curse of the earth is removed. That's from Romans 8, 19 to 22. And what's the curse of the earth? It's groaning. It's longing to be back in its original condition. And it's subject to a curse because God cursed it because of the sin of man. It, the, it can't produce the way it's meant to produce, as it did in the first earth, in the Garden of Eden. So in a sense, I think that the planet could be like the Garden of Eden, abundantly producing food in a lush greenhouse environment with a restored water canopy above the earth. I think the earth will be less rugged with a consistent, mild climate. We looked at the verse that said that, that there'll probably be no wastelands and deserts. Life will be everywhere. From this, we can deduce that poverty and hunger will be unknown. There will be no need for food banks or homeless shelters to feed and water the impoverished. Welfare lines, welfare lines will cease to exist. People will live long lives. Well, why? They're going to be shielded from what? The harmful radiation from the sun. Okay? By the water canopy in the sky above. And again, that's a theory based upon some verses. I think this will result, obviously, in hospitals being scarce. Uh, cemeteries will be nearly non-existent. Now, people are going to die in his, his millennial kingdom. We looked at Isaiah 65, 20. But if you die at 100 years old, you're considered dying what? Young. Okay? Now, that's just a brief taste of what life might be like in an earthly millennial kingdom. Now, the New Testament verse that describes the millennium is found in Revelation 21 through 6. I don't think I put that up there, did I? No. So turn there. We'll take a look at this verse briefly and some more. Because the focus of this sermon is really to get on the character or really the nature of the kingdom. And what will it be like living during that time? Of course, if you're a believer, you will have what? A glorified body. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part 
in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, again, let's talk about what I call the nature of the kingdom. And these are the three points I want to make. That verse says in, in verses 2 and 3, Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3, that Satan is bound. I know no world where Satan is bound. You know no world where Satan is bound. We only live in a world, we will only most likely live in a world where Satan is free. But him being bound is going to dramatically alter the world. Because there will be no satanic enterprise, no satanic ideologies, no satanic philosophies on that earthly millennial kingdom. Now think about that for a moment. There's going to be no satanic theories of morality, no satanic theories of justice, no satanic theories of social behavior, no satanic opinions or ideologies of any kind existent anywhere on the globe. Jesus Christ sets the agenda for all the world. It will look something like this. There'll be no more strip clubs, crack houses, gambling casinos, places of false worship, corrupt governments, etc. No longer is the world hostile to God or an enemy of the truth or full of wickedness. It will be a very different existence. It will be the time of refreshing, a time of restitution. God will truly be the God of that age. And the whole world, and all of its economics, and all of its labor, and all of its education, and all of its social life, and all of its morality, all of its understanding and learning and opinions and thoughts and ideas and concepts, concepts will reflect the mind of Christ. Think about that for a moment. What would that be like? We can only imagine that. There also be, as it says up there, the universal rule of Christ. This is something that is talked about throughout the Old and New Testament. Let me just give you one verse in the Old Testament. This is the prophet Daniel speaking. He said, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Think about that. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language are going to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And of course, Revelation 19.15 says the same thing. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. It's a universal or comprehensive rule of Jesus Christ. And so these two verses I just read tell us that his rule is going to be global. It's going to be global. How is this done? He's going to rule through who? Us, his saints. Okay. Now we get a picture of this in Luke 19. I'm just going to read this to you because I don't think I put it up there, did I? No. Luke 19. Just listen to this. and This may take on a different perspective. Jesus is speaking in a parable and he says this, starting in Luke 19, verses 12 through 20. 
So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has ten minas more. And he said to him, now watch this, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. You're going to reign with him. Some will have authority over what? Ten cities. The second came saying, your mina, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you're to be over five cities. So I think there's just a little insight into the, this comprehensive rule that Christ has over the world through those who are faithful. He gives one ten cities to rule over in another five cities, depending on their faithfulness. So it's a universal rule that's mediated through his saints. And is so comprehensive is his rule that the nations, now listen to this, will travel to Jerusalem to seek his judgment. Micah 4.3 says this, And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. So as he's reigning in Jerusalem in this millennial earthly kingdom, they're going to come to him and seek his judgment. He's going to rule over them. It's also an indestructible kingdom. Daniel 2.44 In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now, we all know some history, right? And history always records that there's always been kingdom after kingdom. They don't last, do they? But there is no coming kingdom that will replace his kingdom. It will endure forever. It will be a kingdom characterized also. Not only is it indestructible, it's going to be a decisive kingdom. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the phrase rule with a rod of iron means that justice will be administered quickly or immediately. The days of this form of justice that we are all too familiar with will be gone. Does anyone recognize the name Zokar Sarnev? I know you do, but just... Zokar Sarnev was convicted of perpetrating the April 15, 2013 Boston Marathon bombing with his older brother. Together they planted pressure cooker bombs near the finish line of the race, killing three people and injuring 281 others. Four days later, on the evening of April 19th, Zokar Sarnev was located hiding inside a boat in Watertown, Massachusetts. Sarnev was tried and convicted of 30 counts and subsequently sentenced to death. His death sentence was vacated on appeal in July 2020, but the U.S. Supreme Court reversed that decision in March of 2022, and he is still alive awaiting his execution. In Christ's millennial kingdom, those stories will not exist. Justice will be swift and fair and immediate. 
It's also going to be a righteous rule. It says this in Isaiah 11, verses 3 and 4, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, meaning that Jesus, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. In other words, he's going to judge rightly, not because of what he hears or what he thinks he sees or what someone reported has been seen, but he will judge righteously because he knows everything. No one can complain that they were judged unfairly. Because he's all-powerful, he is not influenced by what we call, we see this so much in our time lately, the mob mentality that doesn't want to respect the rule of law, that you are, are guilty until proven innocent. The rule of his law will always be applied righteously and fairly. He's also going to rule spiritually. I think this is the neatest part. With Satan bound, there will be one ruler with one faith or one religion. The nations will worship King Jesus only as all other false religions are eliminated. Isaiah 2, 17 and 19 says, The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. It's talking about when he comes again. Well, what, I love this verse 18. But the idols will completely vanish. So when he comes again in his glorious return, we've talked about what's going to happen to the people. They're going to know he's God and judgment's coming. And they, in terror, hide. Remember, they're hiding in caves. They want the rocks to fall on them because of all the earthquakes and all, the, you know, the, all that's going on around the planet. And they're taking these idols, and they know they're, they're no good. And they toss them away. That is the end of all idol worship. Verse 19 says, Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. And according to Ezekiel 40 to 48, a temple will be rebuilt on the proper site and memorials will be held there to remember God's marvelous redemptive work. Mike records that the nations will come to a rebuilt temple to worship. I mean, think about that. Listen to this. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his path. So the nations are going to come to Jerusalem to learn his ways and to worship him. This is not just a Jewish nation. This is all of the nations are coming. It says, For from Zion will go forth the law, even the world, word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now Zechariah records that men from everywhere will seek the Lord. So intense is the desire to know the Lord during this earthly millennial kingdom. They will grasp the garment of a Jew to find the Lord. It says this, Zechariah 8, 20-23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. 
so many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Can you imagine that? The earth is filled with the knowledge of God. People are hungering for him, as it should be. He's going to rule peacefully as well. Uh, His earthly millennial kingdom is characterized by peace and security. There will be no wars. Security will be commonplace. Micah 4, 3 and 4 says this, They will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Peace, security. There'll be no more need for ADT. (laughs) Under his rule, joy will fill the earth. Isaiah 12, 4 through 6. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And we all know this, right? In the presence of God, there is what? Fullness of joy. So you have joy. You have peace. You have an, an indestructible kingdom. The righteous rule. The spiritual rule. All those things that I have mentioned. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, we can only imagine what that would be like, right? And finally, saints reign with him. Daniel wrote this. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. That is your inheritance. A kingdom prepared for you. Paul writes this. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So all the saints will come in glorified form into the kingdom to reign with Christ. Now, how will we reign? We look at a passage from Revelation to gain more insight. Look at verse 6 of Revelation chapter 20. I think you might still be there. It said, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. It says that we'll be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What does a priest do? Brings people to God, right? I believe that will be our worldwide function, bringing people to God, which is what we should be doing now, by the way. So get your practice in, because you'll be doing it for a thousand years, if again there's a literal thousand year reign. Bringing people to God. I think we can do that two ways. 
we will teach them the truth of the knowledge of God. Say, well, how can I teach? I don't have a teaching gift, right? How can I teach? Well, guess what? You enter the kingdom. How? In what? A perfect, glorified body. So you're going to be known, and you will fully know God as well, right? The veil will be removed. So that means that we will teach people the knowledge of God. There will be places of worship where only the truth of God is taught. The truth of God will be taught in schools. Well, why? Where's Satan? He's bound. Who controls that? So if I have ten cities, you know what those cities are going to be taught? If you have ten cities, what are they going to be taught? And you're going to do whose will? God's will. Okay? The truth of God will be taught in families because the families will teach in obedience with the law their children. will know. I, the truth of God, it will be discussed at work because the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of God. I think a second way that we will, as priests, reign and rule over people is that we can literally usher people into the presence of God at Jerusalem. I've read passages where the nations come to worship King Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. Well, if we are the rulers of these cities or nations, we can be leading them to his presence, where he will also teach them his laws and his ways. But the text also says not only do we are priests of God, that we're going to reign with him. Now, what does that mean? Well, that simply means that we're going to be executing the king's wishes. I've already mentioned that we have been given authority over cities according to our faithfulness, Luke 19. I think that reigning with him will look something like this. And this is, again, this is my speculating here. But all of the world leaders, all of the governors, all the prime ministers, all the judges, all the chiefs of of police, all those who are responsible for education, all those who are responsible for the judicial process, all those who are responsible for legislation, all those who are responsible for everything that is going on across the face of the earth will be the saints. The saints. Who will have the delegate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to carry out his will everywhere. And that means that there will be truth in education. There will be truth. There will be justice in the courtroom. There will be moral standards upheld in every area of human life. There will be honesty in the newspaper. There will not be pollution online as the internet will be filled with truth. Books will be filled with truth. Television will be filled with only that which is true, which carries out the agenda of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens because saints will be in charge of the internet, social media, Television, radio, education, social life, the judicial process, the legislative process, every aspect of life. Here's a kicker. The saints won't have to try to figure out what to do because they will all be glorified and perfect. 
will know everything because we will already have been made to know as we are known. We will simply enforce the king's agenda, which will be abundantly and perfectly clear to all of us. There's no vote in the House of Representatives, hopefully the majority rule. We will all be in agreement. I should have gotten an amen out of that. Are you guys still processing your turkey or what? Now, one of the questions that I wanted to answer, what will we be like? Okay. So what I want you to do is turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Because you always get this question, what will my glorified body be like? Okay. And the obvious answer is that it'll be like his body, his is his glorified body when Jesus came back from the dead. But this is a question that the Corinthians ask. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. It says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown perishable body. It, raises, it is raised in imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. In other words, let me just summarize that real briefly for you. What he's saying is that the seed that goes into the ground doesn't look like anything that comes out. You ever watched that movie, Secondhand Lions? Anybody ever seen that movie years ago? That seed salesman sold them all those seeds, and it was supposed to be bok choy, and it was supposed to be tomatoes, and it was supposed to be corn, it was supposed to be lettuce, and it was supposed to be broccoli, all that stuff. And it all came up like corn. And they, when they had to come up, they were like, what's this? This is bok choy. What's this? This is going to be cabbage. Like, what's this? Corn. Well, this looks right. Well, the seed salesman just sold them all seeds of corn. But see, they don't know. We don't know. That's the point Paul's making. Unless you're an expert at, at, and you can tell, unless you are an expert, you can't tell the plant just by looking at the seed. How is it, how in the world can we, all who look like common seed, know what we're going to look like when we can't see it until we experience it? In other words, I really don't know what we're going to look like, what it's going to be like. 
and neither did Paul. By guarantee, it's going to be different. We will have a body like the body of the resurrected Jesus Christ. We will bear the image of the earthy, earthly. I think it means we're going to look somewhat like we look now. But also bear the image of the heavenly, the glorified. And, and scriptures say we'll have bodies like angels, be like angels. But one thing we do know about our glorified existence, this is a question that we all have, we will not marry or be given in marriage in the millennial kingdom. Matthew twenty-two thirty. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, well, if we're not, if we're not going to die again with these glorified bodies, why is there death in the earthly millennial kingdom? Well, you remember I told you that when Jesus comes, who is he going to rescue when he comes? If he, ste- if he does indeed step down on the Mount of Olives, creates that valley of decision, there's a great earthquake and it destroys Jerusalem. But that valley, the mountains are made low. That valley is, is created, but Jerusalem is lifted up. Okay? Who does he rescue when he comes? It's that remnant that believe. And that valley was created so that they can escape. And so my guess is, is that the people Jesus rescued at his second coming in Jerusalem, they'll be the people that'll populate the millennium. There'll be some people, I think it's probably a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, that survive the great tribulation who believe in Jesus. That's what Zechariah 12 through 14 described as a believing remnant. That's what Romans, Paul talks about. They will enter the kingdom and repopulate the earth. And because, guess what? How long are they living? How long are they living? If you die to be 100 years old, you're going to be considered what? Young. So they're living long lives just like what? The first society, okay? I think that they can exponentially be able to populate the planet within that thousand years. Again, that's a speculation, a guess, if there is indeed a thousand-year millennial reign. Now, the question is, will there be hostility in the kingdom? Well, the kingdom, in the nature of the, of the millennial kingdom is this. It's, there will be no hostility in the animal kingdom. This is one of the most widely recognized verses that describes life in the millennium. And the wolf will dwell with what? The lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. We believe that when, when Jesus, when Adam and Eve were first created, there was a symbiotic relationship between Adam and Eve and the animal kingdom. Okay? We see glimpses of that. We can sit literally, if you live there where their deers are, have a deer liquor, you can actually get deer to feed you. They can trust you, and they can actually, I've seen it online, they bring their families, like 20 or 30 deer come, and you're being fed by a human being. That's that symbiotic relationship. But that ended when? After the flood, when God reinstituted 
capital punishment, and he put what? Fear between man and beast or man and animal. Well, that is now gone. So there's no more hostility in the animal kingdom. And why is that? Because the last part of verse 9, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The reason why man is where he is, why things are so bad, is that the earth is not filled with what? The knowledge of God. Now, at his first coming, Jesus gave us a taste of what life in his kingdom would be like. Do you know that he basically, do you remember this? He basically banished disease from Palestine. Because he went, and wherever he went, what did he do? He healed, and he healed, it says, everybody that wanted to be healed. He created food from a few loaves of bread and fish to feed thousands. He forgave sin. He taught the truth. He gave them principles to make their life rich and rewarding. He demonstrated loving kindness and generosity. That is what life in the millennial kingdom will be like. Here's the thing, though. Despite all of this, when he was alive on the earth, having experienced all of that, when given the chance, the people screamed for his blood. But why? Men love sin. John 3.19. This is a verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. At that time, man was living in a world under the rule of Satan. Everything in this environment is pulling man away from God. So man's war is fought on three fronts. He must fight against Satan. He must fight against Satan's world system. And he must fight against his own sinful nature. But when we get to the earthly millennial kingdom, Satan is bound. The environment is now pushing man Towards God. Now, man only wages war against what? His depraved sinful nature. Okay? And though Jesus Christ reigns in a totally renewed universe, there is absolute power over everything and everyone, though it's a perfect world, his glorious perfections are manifested through his person and his will through all the glorified saints who carry out his agenda. Even though everything is exactly the way it ought to be, everything is right and peaceful, there aren't any wars because everybody's weapons have been pounded into plowshares and everything is flourishing. All the economies of the world are doing well. There is prosperity on every front. And in a sense, utopia has arrived. Just like the willful sinners on the earth when Jesus came the first time, there are some in the earthly millennial kingdom who will reject him. Man's depravity will not be altered by a cultural morality. And dare I say that if this type of utopia were offered to the world today, millions would choose today's society or even a worse society over society ruled by Jesus Christ. This is the testimony of Scripture. 
Look at verses 7 to 10 of Revelation 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And this is really sad, this next part of the verse. In number they are like the sand of the seashore. Multitudes will be deceived, will reject Jesus Christ. And they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. As sad as this is, and this is what I'm going to close with, I believe this glorifies the grace of God. It's so funny that we talked about this in Sunday school. The question that you want to ask God when you're with him in his presence was what? Most of you said what? Why me? Why me? Even though there's a comprehensive cultural morality, even though Christ rules with a rod of iron, even though there's a massive evidence that he is in fact God in human flesh, in the ruler of the world, and even though theology will not be disputed, but truth will reign, righteousness will prevail, peace will encircle the globe, men will love their sins so much they will reject Christ even while he's present. But those who are saved by the grace of God, in that regard, the grace of God and God himself is glorified. It is beyond comprehension that any man, woman, or child could even be saved. But we are by the grace of God. A God who is rich in grace and kindness. And that, God is glorified. Amen? And so I want you to this week just praise God for his grace. That's what life might be like in the millennial kingdom if there is indeed a thousand year reign. And next week we're going to talk about something that has absolutely no theological difficulties. Everyone knows there's going to be an eternal state. <laughs> the new heaven and a new earth, the new, new Jerusalem, all that. We'll, we'll take a look at what the text says about what that will be like. Okay? So whether you're a premillennial or amillennial, we all agree in this one. This is coming, and we're going to, it will be like this. And it's going to be a completely different existence, as we'll see. Amen? Stand with me. Let's, let's worship the Lord finally uh, as we close with the song. Lord, thank you. I hope that we are encouraged. And if there is a millennial kingdom, I thank you for entrusting us to, to rule with you, to be your delegated authority, and to perfectly do your will. Lord, may we be diligent to use what you've given us because we are all saved by the grace of God. Amen? Let's close with the song.